Hey friend, this is Ryan Thomas. We're so blessed and grateful you're listening to On the Road and supporting Faith Radio. You are quite simply the best and we appreciate you so much. Enjoy the show. Discovering stories of courage, determination, and hope. Welcome to Faith Radio's On the Road. Now, here's Ryan Thomas. Well, it is just not every single day that we get an excuse to talk about the Golden Fleece, Mount Olympus, and Jesus in the same half hour. But today is that day. In this place where we so love to share great stories, we'll take a second look at some of the most familiar, informative stories in the world as we welcome Dr. Louis Marcos, who kindly says we can call him Lou. We'll jump into the one-of-a-kind message of his brand new book, The Myth Made Fact, reading Greek and Roman mythology through Christian eyes. Dr. Marcos is a professor of English and a scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. And the warmest of welcomes to you, good sir. How's the day treating you? Eh, not too bad. It's, it's, it's still it's pretty warm in Houston. Oh, really? How warm is warm in Houston in November? Well, it, it's, it's weird. Last night it went down to 50. Man, I, I had to put a blanket on. <laughs> but it's, it, it's already back up to just about 70. So this is Houston. We had our cold spell a few weeks ago. Now, you did declare to us, though, you have some roots in the Midwest. I do. Well, my, my, my mother uh, grew up in, in Mitchell, South Dakota, yes. home of the Corn Palace, right? <laughs> uh, my father grew up in New Jersey. But it's a good opening question because my four grandparents were all born in Greece and all oh, emigrated perfect. to America around about 1930. Perfect. So I'm actually a full-blooded Greek. So when I write a book about Greek mythology— this is not just my sort of Western cultural heritage. Yeah. These are my relatives, okay? <laughs> and, and not only that, but my family, believe it or not, is from Sparta. What? And my name is, you know, Louis, Lou, but my Greek name, if I'd been born in Greece, would have been Leonidas. I mean, that really oh. is my name, and that's, you know, you've heard of the 300 Spartans. Well, sir, can I just say, I've always felt that a scholar in residence sounds like one of the more epic and sage roles that one could possibly inhabit. I mean, do you essentially think and articulate increasingly profound thoughts each day? Is that basically what you do? Well, it is wonderful. I mean, the, the normal teacher at my school teaches four classes in the fall and four in the spring. And as scholar in residence, they give me three and three, so it gives me more time to write. So I'm still teaching a lot, and, and I like it. I'm, I'm a, a teacher first. And then one thing about my books is, you know, I always want my books to be accessible to my students. Now, that doesn't mean simplistic, but I don't want to write books that only other PhDs can read full of jargon. And so <laughs> I, I'm always driven by the image. One of my, my mission statements on, you know, on, 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 my, on my Vita is I believe in the professor as public educator. So, you know, my, my first duty is to my students, but I have another duty to bring all these wonderful ideas of academia out into the public. Now, doctor, it is not every day we get an excuse to talk about the Golden Fleece, Mount Olympus, and Jesus in the same half hour. This is such a fascinating and downright cool message that you have here. You mentioned the the ancestry, but where did it start for you? How did that interest in the connection between mythology and Christianity really start? Well, I tell you, I, I grew up loving these myths, you know, reading the Odyssey and the Iliad, maybe in simpler versions. I don't remember the first version I read, 
but I've always loved mythology. Of course, I grew up on the Sinbad, the Sailor movie, so I always enjoyed that kind of stuff. You know, what was it called? Jason, yeah, Jason and the Argonauts, and what was the other one called? Clash of the Titans, sure. where Perseus cuts off the original ones from the yes. 50s, you know, the, or 50s, 60s, 70s with the stop motion animation and things like that. So I've always had this fascination uh, with mythology, and because I'm a Christian of a very much C.S. Lewis slant, I've always loved the fact that Lewis could write sort of straight books of apologetics, like Mere Christianity, Miracles, Problem of Pain, but also when he was writing fiction, like the Chronicles of Narnia or the Space Trilogy, he's still doing apologetics, but in a very subtle way. He's dealing with the same issues, but in a fictional fantasy, and I, and, and, and I, teach those. I also teach the Lord of the Rings, too, and I've always loved the Lord of the Rings and the way uh, Tolkien can take these issues and these struggles and incarnate them in this wonderful world. So that was one. The other thing, though, I think that the more theological thing that's always been in the back of my mind is it always bothered me, and maybe it bothered you as well. It's like, are you telling me that before Jesus was born, God simply ignored 99% of the human race? Mm. Right? And, and I thought, that, that doesn't make sense. Well, yes, only to the Jews did God speak directly through the, the law, the prophets, the Bible itself. But he didn't ignore everybody. He still spoke to us, but through what theologians call general revelation, right? He speaks through our conscience. He speaks through creation. He speaks through reason. But he also speaks through imagination and through what C.S. Lewis calls, in mere Christianity, he calls it the good dreams of the pagans. Hmm. And a wonderful phrase that wow. there is God that 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 we are made in the imago Dei, the image of God. And you know that famous line in Ecclesiastes: "He has written eternity on the hearts of men." Or that famous opening line from Augustine's Confessions: "O Lord, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee." God has put a desire in us for Him, and of course, we can't get to Him apart from grace, we can't do it of our own steam, but the desire itself was implanted by God, and that desire manifests itself in stories and epics and tragedies and other ways. And again, we're lucky as believers, we have this thing called the Bible that we can use as a touchstone or a measure, right? so we're not completely on our own, but with that proper measure, we have the freedom to learn and explore and dream alongside the ancient Greeks and Romans and see what we can learn and how we can be shaped by these stories. And I'm one of those guys that, you know, I, I'll read devotionals, but sometimes when I read a book of mythology, that's even more of a devotional yes. to me because it brings me into, again, the big questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Yeah. What is my origin? What is my destination? All of that stuff, you know, is taking place in that myth and it, it opens us to God's fuller revelation. Dr. Lou Marcos with us today, author of The Myth Made Fact, Reading Greek and Roman Mythology Through Christian Eyes. And Dr. Marcos, a professor of English and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. And he's also written, I believe this is your 18th book, or is this 18 plus Actually, one? Actually, it's now the 20th book. <laughs> it goes fast. It's been a good year. So this is number 20. <laughs> the bios and, can't and even just keep to up. show you I'm, I'm in a real greco-roman groove right now <laughs> back in the summer I, I, I published a book on ancient greece in the spring there'll be a new one in ancient rome and in the summer maybe i've got to come back on university press will be publishing 
a new book called From Plato to Christ, How Platonic Thought Helped Shape the Christian Faith. Oh, kind my. of a sequel to another university book I did called uh, From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classics. So I'm very much in a Greco-Roman groove right now. It's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard the phrase Greco-Roman groove before. Thank you, sir. That's a new one for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was this was part of what you said just moments ago, but just to unravel the thread, when it comes to C.S. Lewis and just the extraordinary Chronicles of Narnia, maybe people are thinking, okay, Greek and Roman mythology. Now, I'm interested, but I don't have a lot of experience with it. Well, is it is it being excessive to say actually that Lewis and Tolkien both borrowed pretty heavily from stories from Greek and Roman mythology? They really did. Now, in their case, they also brought a lot of Norse mythology in. But they're all mixed together. The Greco, the Roman, the Norse are, are coming together and underline. Now, I don't know if you know this, but there's kind of a famous debate. Even though Lewis was incredibly supportive of the Lord of the Rings, and in fact, Tolkien probably would never have finished it without Lewis. It's not that Lewis helped him write it, but Lewis encouraged him. He was like a fan. Mm. But unfortunately, Tolkien was never a huge fan of the Chronicles of Narnia. I've heard and that. Part, you've heard that. And, it, and, and it, there's two reasons. One, he thought they were too allegorical, which is not exactly true. Let's talk about that another time. But the other reason he didn't like Narnia is he thought it was too slapdash, too much of a, of a mixture of all different heterogeneous matter. Now, let's be fair to C.S. Lewis, okay? Compared to the Lord of the Rings. Creation was a slapdash <laughs> job. I mean, God only had six days. I mean, I'm sorry. Nothing is systematic. But one of the things about Narnia that Tolkien didn't like, but most Narnians, lovers of Narnia love this, including myself, is when you go to Narnia, everything you love is there. So there's the Greco-Roman, there's the Norse, there's the sort of British fairy tales, there's Arthurian ideas, of course there's the Bible. It's like, we go there, there's even Father Christmas. We go there, and everything we love, everything that provokes what Lewis called a numinous feeling, a sort of feeling of, of joy and, and horror, it's not horror, but joy and awe at the same time, and it, it's all there in Lewis, and it, it's all mixed together. Uh, mm. But that's what we love. Again, Tolkien thought that was, that was too slapdash. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's these myths that we resonate with. And I will tell you that even Tolkien did this, because, I don't know if you're a, a big Tolkien fan, but, you know, pretty soon, I think, Amazon is actually going to start making, you know, the, the, the stuff. And apparently, the series they're going to make uh, over the next year is going to focus on the second age, if you know anything about Lord of the Rings world, about the rise and fall of Numenor. Mm. That's that great island from which the Numenorians or the Dunedain come from, mm. you know, Aragorn being a descendant of the Numenorian kings. Uh, and that's going to be the focus and the forging of the ring. But the reason I mention it is that even Tolkien, who said he hated allegory, Another name for Numenor, because, you know, every word in Tolkien has, you know, three different versions, is Atlantis. I mean, it is Atlantis. Numenor, so both Lewis and Tolkien were fascinated by that ancient Greek myth of Atlantis that was basically probably invented by Plato. Maybe it was based on some some actual historical event, but it it comes from Plato, from some of his dialogues. And and, uh, Atlantis is also mentioned in The Magician's Nephew. That's where the magic dust comes uh, that Uncle Andrew turns into the rings, if you know anything about the magician. Yes. Um, 
but it's 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 exciting stuff, and we we can't get away from it. It's such a a deep heritage, especially in the West. But because the West has influenced so much of the world, uh, you know, most of the world has been influenced somewhat by these stories. And again, the wrestling that goes on in the stories and with the stories. Well, our team here, we were just kind of hopeful that we could get you somehow to talk about Lewis and Tolkien for a good long while. And you did it for us, man. We didn't even have to do a thing. That was so beautiful. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's always great. And, And you do realize that the title of my book comes from Lewis and Tolkien. And really, that's the next question, because, of course, as you've talked about extensively, C.S. Lewis, his own acceptance of faith in Jesus, really based on his understanding that Jesus is the myth-made fact. Right. See, Lewis, again, most people know that Lewis was an atheist before he became a Christian. But a lot of people don't know is that Lewis did not go directly from atheism to Christianity. That's what Lee Strobel did, and Josh McDowell, and Chuck Colson, all the great apologists, American apologists of the 20th century. But Lewis became a theist first, a believer in God, and it still took him another maybe year and a half to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And what was holding him back was his love of mythology and legend and folklore, because he'd read a book called The Golden Bough, and the Golden Bough had argued by a guy named Sir James Fraser. He was the sort of the, uh, you know, the, the myth of Joseph, Joseph Campbell. He was sort of the Joseph Campbell of his day. Sure. And he studied, you know, ancient people groups and tribal groups and things like that and looked for connections, what they call archetypes, uh, a reoccurring character types, like the wise old man. So whether it's Obi-Wan Kenobi or Dumbledore or Gandalf, it's still that same archetype that you, know, you find it in the sensei if you're, if you're okay. into uh, martial arts. Sure. It's everywhere. Well, the archetype that Fraser identified and that influenced Lewis so much was called the corn king. And it's these weird stories that are spread out throughout ancient cultures of a god or demigod coming to earth and dying off in a violent death and then returning seasonally. It was a sort of the life, death, and rebirth of the, the seasonal cycle. And it confuses people because corn, for a British person, means wheat. So the corn king is really the wheat king. He, he follows the life, death, and rebirth of the cycle of the grain from which you know most people you know, live their life eating bread. Except now in America where everybody's gluten-free. Uh, uh, but until now, bread was the staple of life, right? So uh. anyway, uh, some of the names of corn kings are Osiris or Adonis or Bacchus or Mithras or Baldur or, 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 or uh, Tammuz. There's lots and lots of names. And Lewis, at first, could not accept the full Christian revelation because he thought that Jesus was just the corn king myth for the Hebrew people. I mean, what's the difference? And that's when he was taking a long night walk with Tolkien, and Tolkien was already a strong believer. And Tolkien said, Jack, you know, his nickname Lewis, his nickname was Jack. He said, Jack, did you ever wonder, maybe the reason Jesus sounds like a myth is because he's the myth that came true, the myth that came fact. Wow. So we talked about before, right? God has written eternity in the hearts of men. He has put in all of us a desire and a yearning for him, a, a desire, an understanding of our need and a desire for a Savior. And amongst the pagans, it manifests itself in these myths, some of which are very scary and very bloody, right? But doesn't it make sense? This is what this is what kind of turned Lewis's head. Now, wait a minute. Okay, I can understand how Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament. I can understand how he fulfills the Messianic law and prophets. 
But if Christianity is true, Jesus is not only the Jewish Messiah, he's the savior of the world. And so if Jesus came into the world and maybe a few Jews recognized him, but for all the rest of humanity, all the Gentiles, this was just completely foreign, it would seem like a foreign god had invaded our earth. But in fact, no. When Jesus came as the true corn king, if you will, he not only brought to fulfillment the Old Testament law and prophets, he fulfilled the highest yearnings of the pagan people. And a lot of those highest yearnings manifested in their myths and their rituals. Usually those things are connected anyway. Uh, And so again, Jesus is the savior of the world who draws together, uh, like like it says in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is at the back of all the stories. Yes. Even those who don't know him, he's still at the back of all the stories. Yes. Well, this is so much fun. So fascinating. Just love your passion, sir. Dr. Lou Marcos, the author of The Myth Made Fact, reading Greek and Roman mythology through Christian eyes. Dr. Lou, a professor of English and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. So you lay out 50 myths in the myth made fact, sir. Is there one that you would have to admit is just your personal favorite? You keep going back to it again and again. And if so, how come? Well, maybe we'll start with the cover because they, they made a beautiful book here. And the book has a wonderful cover. looks like it's from a Greek vase of Daedalus and Icarus. And I think everybody knows the story. Uh, Daedalus was the great artificer of the ancient world. And in fact, he is the one who created the labyrinth where the evil Minotaur was imprisoned. That Minotaur that was later killed by Theseus, a story I also tell in the myth made fact. And uh, the evil King Minos didn't want the secret of the labyrinth to be escaped, and so he imprisoned Daedalus and his son Icarus in the labyrinth. And there was no escape. The only escape was through a window, but that window overlooked sheer rock going down into the ocean. So the only way to escape would be to fly. And so the great artificer takes wood, he creates the frame for wings, he collects feathers from the birds, he uses wax, and he makes wings. And he puts a pair on himself and a pair on his son, and he says, Icarus, follow me, but make sure you keep a middle course. Don't fly too low or the moisture will drag you down. Don't fly too high or the sun will melt the wax. And at first the boy listens, but soon he starts to think he is a bird, soaring back and forth, forgetting his father's advice and his command. He goes really low, the water from the ocean fills up his feathers, and it pulls him down, and the last minute he stretches out his arms and soars upward, higher and higher and higher. But as he gets closer to the sun, the warmth of the sun melts the wax. One by one the feathers fly off, and poor Icarus plummets to his death. Now, this is a story about, hey, listen to your father, but not just listen to your father. Listen to good advice. Be persuaded. Take the middle course. It's about what's called temperance or self-control. And what I like about this story is not only, again, it's a simple tale, but it reminds us of something that I even think as Christians we need to be reminded of. Too often, we think of God as a thou shalt not God. Like, he, he gives us all these laws because he doesn't want us to have fun. 
I mean, I really think sometimes we grow up thinking that God is just watching. It's that old idea of always pretending to be miserable, because if God notices you're happy, he'll strike you down. You know, like Annabelle Lee. Uh, they, they, he loved, they loved so much the angels got jealous, and they, they killed Annabelle Lee. A lot of people grow up with that, you know, very inaccurate vision of God as, as cosmic boogeyman uh, who's just waiting. Yeah, let me just see you smile and be happy, and I'll strike you down. But in fact, God's law is there to give us life. God's law is to protect us. A lot of times we forget. Some people think God gave the law to the Jews to take away their freedom and enslave them. But that's not true. The law of Moses was not given to a group of free men to turn them into slaves. It was given to a group of ex-slaves to make them free men. See, we, we hurt ourselves when we violate God's law. And so we need to have a more positive understanding. And I think that we might miss that in the Bible because we've read it so many times. But when we see it in the myth and understand it, we can often read it back into the Bible. And then, just an example that kind of runs through my book. Lewis said to parents who read the Chronicles of Narnia to their kids, don't feel like you have to point out all the connections between Aslan and Jesus to your children. In fact, don't do that, because Lewis wanted kids to learn to feel a certain way towards Aslan, that sort of mixture of joy and terror, beauty and terror. And he said, let them learn that, and when the right time comes, they can take that feeling and transfer it to its true object, and that, of course, is Jesus. So sometimes I go off to the Greek myths, I learn something that I missed in the Bible, and I come back, and now I understand it better. And so Daedalus and Icarus reminds us, God's law is there to protect us. It's not, as some people say, why is it that everything I want to do is either illegal, immoral, or fattening? Right? <laughs> <laughs> that view we have, right? And we, we, we project that view into God, cosmic killjoy. But no, it's there for our own safety. I love that line, right? The Aslan line, the whole reason you were brought into Narnia was to know me better there. Yeah. And that just totally totally expands on it. So thank you so much for that. Yes, it, it, it is there. And, you know, a, a few times I've spoken to some Christians said, oh, well, wait a minute, that, 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 that sounds phony, right? What, what, what do you mean? Yeah. Uh, learning it. But it's, it's not phony. How do, girl, how do girls first learn to be mothers? By having dolls, okay? You give a little girl a doll to play with, if you're allowed to do that today. You give a little girl a doll to play with and she lavishes a certain kind of love and affection on it. But the idea is someday that affection will be turned to its true object, a human baby. And so it, it is actually one of the ways we learn and grow as a species. It's not phony, as some people might think. Dr. Lou Marcos, the book, The Myth Made Fact, Reading Greek and Roman Mythology Through Christian Eyes, Professor of English, Scholar-in-Residence at Houston Baptist University. And sir, I know that the book comes out Thanksgiving week just three days before Thanksgiving on the 23rd. Where can we go to get it, sir? It's, I mean, you can go to Classical Academic Press, that's, that's the publisher, but it's also available on Amazon. But if you go to Classical Academic Press right now, they are offering the pre-order discount. So if you order it now, you'll get some kind of discount, and then as soon as it's published, it'll, it'll come to you. Uh, so either of those are great. And if, you, and if you go to Amazon, 
and just type in my name, Marcos with a K. It's a Greek name. That's why there's a K. You can go to my uh, Amazon Ultra page and see all my other books and stuff. Um, but that, that's probably the easiest way to get it. And it should be available in Kindle as well. But this is a beautiful looking book. It is. It's a hardcover book published in all different colors and stuff like that. And they just had a wonderful job. Like, I, I, you know, I, I included lots of notes with additional information. And instead of just like putting them at the bottom, they, they put them, they scattered them around in different colored boxes. It's, it's just beautiful. The, the layout they did is great, which is befitting a book on mythology. And it's got all these color uh, photographs of famous artwork based on mythology as well. Uh, so it's, it's a lot of fun. I have to say I enjoyed the pictures extensively. I really did. Yeah, they're, they're nice. Like I said, it, Kindle's okay, but it's nice to have. I mean, it's, it's the kind of book where you can read it out loud to your kids. That's, that's the idea. And discuss it as a family. Because every chapter has a whole bunch of study questions that are open-ended and can lead. And, and, and you can find one for all ages, too, whether you've got kids or high schoolers or adults. Uh, and you can just take the conversation any way that you want it. Well, Dr. Marcos, we had every confidence that this was going to be an epic conversation. But, sir, I believe you even surpassed our expectations. I'm not sure well, how you well, did it, so but much. you did it. Definitely, definitely love to come on again. Thanks for sharing in the story of this latest episode of Faith Radio's On the Road. For more on today's conversation and the full podcast archive of all our episodes, look for On the Road when you visit MyFaithRadio.com. Thanks so much for listening to On the Road. Programming like this happens because of your incredible support. You can learn more about partnering financially at MyFaithRadio.com. And we'd be so glad to connect with you during the week on social media. Just search for On the Road with Ryan Thomas on Facebook. And our Twitter handle is at OnTheRoadRyan. Until next time, God bless you, my friend.